They were people who had been beaten down with the idea that they could never attain to righteousness and therefore never attain, obtain a relationship, a meaningful relationship with their God. They had been taught to trust in their heritage, the fact that they were born in covenant as Jews. But then they were also taught that unless their righteousness was perfect before God, according to the standards of their leaders, they could never really hope for heaven and immortal glory. In fact, there was a whole sect of Jews that didn't even believe there was heaven. They didn't believe there was anything after this life. And those Sadducees, I love the expression to remind you which was which, that's why they were so sad, you see. They thought it was all here. And these common people Jesus was preaching to, they had no hope in this world or in the world to come. So Jesus came and the way Jesus preached to them was something they'd never heard. He began with what we call the Beatitudes. He began his sermon saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. They shall be comforted. He targets each of the feelings, the emotions, and the identity of the people he's speaking to. And he says, you all are blessed. And you're blessed though your condition is impoverished, though your condition is sinful, though your condition is everything you've been taught is hopeless, you are in fact blessed. You're blessed because God has interceded for you. You're blessed because God has loved you. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you. Say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why would you rejoice in that situation? God says, rejoice. He then says, you're the salt of the earth. God has made you the salt of the earth. God has made you a preserving influence. God has made you a flavoring influence. God has made you someone to make a difference in the world for his glory. But he warns if the salt's lost its savor, it's of no value. It's of no use. It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trod under the feet of men. He says you are light. You are a light in this world. But if you put a bushel basket over the light and it becomes darkness, it's of no value. He says, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. He then establishes the law. Don't think that what I'm saying is to counter the law of God. The law of God is good. Don't think that I'm saying the law is not good. In fact, I'm endorsing the law. I'm not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. Till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all be fulfilled. These commandments of God are valid. These commandments of God are good. But then in verse 20, again, he he blows their minds. You see, in their society, there are classes of individuals. There are the priests and the scribes, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees have one thing in common. In spite of all of their differences on matters of of miracles and of heaven and of angels and all of these these questions of, of the greater revelation of God, the thing they have in common is they believe that righteousness is going to be found in the law. And obedience to God's law, to his commands, are the way to have a meaningful relationship with God. And they're the way to get blessings from God. And they've got this intricate maze of, of an, a matrix of obedience whereby they think they can obtain God's blessings or command God's favor. And if you look at the political society of their time, the geopolitical realities, they think the key to deliverance from Rome is finding a perfect obedience to God because that can obligate God to bless them. And it's not being satisfied. It's not being found. But these people hearing Jesus preach think the Pharisees are it. They're the ones you should be like because they're the ones who have it made. And we see a glimpse of this attitude in the Apostle Paul as he writes in the Philippian letter describing himself. And what does he say? I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, according to the law, blameless. But he also says, I was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. This double standard is incredible, but these these people believed that the Pharisees were the end goal, to be like them. 
But there was a big problem. You see, you couldn't become like a Pharisee because the Pharisees were brought up from their youth to be righteous, to follow this law, to keep these commandments. The Apostle Paul saw himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, according to the law, blameless. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, you know what the law says. He says, all these things have I kept from my youth up. Well, when Jesus preaches this message, he's preaching to people who haven't kept these things from their youth up. So they've already missed the mark. You see, the Pharisees have deluded themselves into thinking they have kept the law perfectly and they're righteous. But that leaves no hope for this mass of people Jesus is preaching to because they see themselves to be sinners. They haven't kept the law. Maybe they didn't have all the law. Maybe they didn't know all the rules. But they find themselves as hopeless. And then Jesus preaches and says the law is good. And the law ought to be kept. And the law is important. But then he says, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The people don't know what to think. If the Pharisees fall short, and we've got to be more righteous than them, what hope is there? But you see, there's a reason why we call this the gospel. The good news. The good news is you're blessed if you mourn. You're blessed if you hunger and thirst after righteousness. If you're hungering and thirsting after something, it's self-evident that you don't have it. These are not a righteous people, but they desire righteousness and they're blessed. Why? Because Jesus Christ is their righteousness. A righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he says this to them. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to explain. You've heard that it was said by them of old time. Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. You've heard it said by these scribes and Pharisees, don't kill. And if you kill, you're unrighteous. You're in danger of judgment. But I say to you, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you say to your brother, thou fool, the judgment of God is going to come upon you. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look after a woman to lust after, you've already committed adultery in your heart. The standard is higher. It's a righteousness that is unattainable, and that is the point. Jesus first disabuses them of the notion that these Pharisees and these scribes have found righteousness according to the law. Because there is no righteousness to be found in the law. The law is good, but men are not good. And men are not keepers of the law. God created man and placed him in a perfect world in a beautiful garden with a command to be fruitful, multiply, take dominion over it. And one law. Don't eat of one tree. Sometimes we focus so much on that one tree, we act like that's the only fruit in the garden. But no, God said of all the fruit, of all the trees in this garden, you may freely eat. The whole world before them. And what did man do? Man partook of the one tree he wasn't supposed to. Men are law breakers. Jesus says the law is good. The law is holy. But your righteousness has to be greater than these Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees are what their name has come to stand for. They're hypocrites. They claim righteousness that they don't possess. They manipulate perception so it looks like they're righteous. And that's what we're going to get to this morning as we look further in this lesson. So he says, you've heard that it has been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform to the Lord Thine oath. The Pharisees are big on oath making. In fact, they make oaths to prevent themselves from having to obey the law because they can't break an oath made to God. We find out about that later. If, if, if they owe God the, the honor that's due their parents, honor thy father and thy mother. If they have to take care of their parents in old age, they say, well, no, I've made a vow. I've made an oath. I've made a vow to God that all of my money will be given to his service. 
which of course means it'll all come to me as the servant of God. But they prevent themselves from having to do obedience under the law by the vows that they make. You've heard that it hath been said of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself. That is, you shouldn't make oaths that you're not going to keep. But I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's thrones, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. Instead, simply tell the truth. Let your yea be yea, and your nay nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. It's like that old English idiom, thou methinks thou dost protest too much. You're swearing to make everyone understand and know that you're serious. Jesus says, just tell the truth. Be a man of your word and people will believe you. The Pharisees make too much of swearing and too little of obeying. Finally, you have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. He says, do more than the Pharisees do. They're great at hating their enemies. And they're great at loving their friends. But what they don't realize is, God loves some of their enemies. And it's better to love those whom God loves. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. That is, that you might be like him, because he makes the sun shine on the just and the unjust. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. God is not so selective in natural physical blessings that he limits them only to those whom he loves as his children. Be like your Father. He closes out what we have divided into the fifth chapter of Matthew, saying, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven, which is in heaven is perfect. And that does close a section of this sermon. And what this message has done is established once for all, those Pharisees that you've been idolizing, they're not so righteous. They don't have it made. They don't have the answer. They don't have the blessing that you have. Who mourn for your sins. But Jesus doesn't stop the message there. And I want to get to a couple of expressions, really the same expression, a couple of times in Matthew chapter 6. Having established that the righteousness required by God is greater than that required by the Pharisees, and the law, while it is good, obedience in perfection to the law is unattainable, Jesus moves on and says, don't be like the Pharisees. First, he says your righteousness must exceed, must exceed their righteousness, and he describes what true righteousness is. Then he, in chapter 6, says, don't be like the Pharisees. These people you've looked up to, you've idolized, you've thought were righteous, be different than they are. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. This morning in Bible study, we talked about the concept of rewards, what it is to receive a positive reward in the kingdom of God and how elusive that is because anything we do pursuing a reward is not worthy of a reward. It's only if we're pursuing Christ for his sake. It's only if we're seeking to know him and seeking to worship him and honor him that we receive that reward, but the very knowledge that God does reward obedience kind of makes it almost an impossibility for us. It makes it a struggle. Well, Jesus here says, don't be like these hypocrites, these Pharisees. They give alms. They give to the poor. They care for the poor. But when they do it, they blow a trumpet and they make a great show of it. You don't have to look far in the world today to see that kind of behavior going on. Charitable organizations waving the flag, all the good we do for the impoverished, all the good we're doing, the alms that we're giving. 
Jesus doesn't say don't take care of the poor, although he does say later, the poor you have always with you. You can always care for the poor, prioritize service to me, and we should remember that in the church of God. A lot of times churches get sidetracked trying to do extracurricular activities, parachurch organizations trying to reach out and serve the community in ways that don't involve the gospel of Christ, and they prioritize those things above the preaching of the gospel and the worship that they're called to. Well, Jesus says, the poor you have always with you, you should care for the poor, He doesn't say don't give alms. He says, but when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. That's the expression I want to focus on if the Lord would would be with us this morning. Thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. It's so contrary to human nature, to our very ideas and the way of looking at things, that our best service to God, that which honors him most, and that for which we receive the greatest blessing is that which is known to no one but ourselves. It's that work that we do without any acknowledgement, any recognition, any pomp or circumstance. And Jesus says, that's what you need to be doing. Be careful. Take heed. Not to do your giving to the poor in a way that's public or that's known. Do it in secret. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's an interesting concept too. He's saying you forget about it. You just do it. You care for people and you don't keep a record of what you've done. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Just do what's right. Care for the poor. If you do this... Your alms may be in secret, but your father, he sees in secret. And that's an important thought for us to consider. God knows. That's why we can't game him. It's why we can't do things pretending that we're doing them for one reason when we really have an ulterior motive. We can't do acts of righteousness and make God believe that we're just worshiping him when in fact we're hoping that people are watching and they're going to praise us and they're going to lift us up. It doesn't work that way. James kind of talks about that a little bit in his epistle when he writes about those who are making a big deal when a rich person comes into the into the church house. When someone comes to your assembly and they're wearing fine apparel and fine jewelry, don't take them and bring them to the highest seat, the best seat in the house. And despise the ones who are impoverished, who are poor or weak or despised. He says, don't do that. And when you come into assembly, don't seek the best seat. You sit in the back. You sit in the lowest seat. And perhaps someone will come and say to you, come up higher. It's the same idea. Jesus then moves on to prayer. When you pray, don't pray like the Pharisees do. Don't pray like the hypocrites do. What do they do? They stand on the street corner and they pray and they make loud noises in the synagogues and the corners of the streets. They want to be seen of men. You know, prayer is an interesting concept in in the way it's considered today. How many times do you see prayer requests on social media and people respond and say, sending prayers your way or prayers and good thoughts coming at you? What is prayer? Well, the Pharisees would be on board with that. What are they doing? They're standing on the street corners. They're standing in the synagogue. They're making loud prayers and they're praying at the people. They want to be heard of men. They want to be seen of men. And Jesus doesn't say there's no place for public prayer, but he says prayer, wherever it's offered, whenever it's offered, prayer is addressed to God. Prayer is communication between man and God. And God honors prayer. But there is prayer that is offered that is not directed at God, and God does not hear it. God does not receive it. God does not answer it. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. The second time, they have their reward. What is a reward? A reward is a result or a consequence of an action. That's what a reward is. They have their reward. A reward is not always a good thing. 
They're praying out loud in front of people, seeking attention, and they get the attention. People say, wow, what a holy person he must be. Listen to that beautiful, articulate prayer. What a great praying man he must be. And they're just soaking up this attention from men. But the reality is their prayer is of no importance, no value. It's not even heard because God will not receive such prayers. They have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet or your chamber. And when thou shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. He says you don't have to let everybody know what you're praying for. You don't have to say prayers where they can be heard by men. You don't have to post it to the whole world on social media. You don't have to stand up in the church house and offer loud and long prayers. Neither do you need to worry about the details of how you're wording your prayer. Because the Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. The Lord knows what you need. When you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. They think they shall be heard for their much speaking. When we think about the subject of prayer, it's the heart communicating with God. It's important that our prayers include an acknowledgement of who God is, his sovereignty, that we worship him. Jesus is about to give them his model prayer. Acknowledge the Father who is on his throne, the Father who is in heaven, who is holy, who is Lord, thy kingdom come. Sovereign, thy will be done in all the earth, in heaven. The provider, the one who gives to us our daily bread, pray a prayer asking for what he's promised to give. Trust him at his word. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Recognize our sin. We are debtors. That was a new concept to these guys. Nothing they'd considered. You don't go to God acknowledging sin. Because if you're a sinner, you can't stand before God. That's what the Pharisees had taught them. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And later on, Jesus is going to preach this message over and over again. As he preaches, he's going to bring in some illustrations, some examples. He's going to talk about that servant who owed his Lord a great sum of money. And he was forgiven that sum by the Lord. And then he turned and the people who owed him a small amount of money, he exacted everything they owed him. And for that, he received condemnation. He received judgment. In his prayer, though, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, deliver us from evil. Praying for God's direction, for his leadership, for his lordship in our lives. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This model is not a a prayer to be necessarily repeated over and over by us. But the elements of this prayer should exist in every prayer that we pray. Every time we go to the Lord in prayer, whether it's in two words or a hundred words, these elements should be there. Acknowledging his sovereignty, his lordship, worshiping him, desiring forgiveness. Confession is made in prayer, desiring direction, and acknowledging that all the glory, all the power, all the kingdom belongs to him so he gives us this he says don't be like these pharisees don't think that you'll be heard for much speaking for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him when you go to the lord in prayer it's not to acquaint him with what your needs are it's not to teach god what you need rather It's to separate yourself from a self-reliance, a self-dependence, and direct your attention to God. And it's for you to process those needs. 
and say, Father, I'm depending on you. And you pray what? According to his will. You pray according to his will. Jesus teaches us prayer and then he says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. You forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He doubles down on that point. Forgiveness, we forgive others because we've been forgiven. And if we understand the forgiveness that is ours, we cannot but forgive others. The Pharisees struggle with all of these points. He says, don't be like them. Finally, he says, when you fast. He doesn't say don't fast. He says when you fast. So you're going to be fasting. But when we fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Ever been around a Christian who just moans and groans and complains about the terrible condition of the world around them? Or the terrible life that they're living, surrounded by family members who have rejected God and his word, and they're the lone Christian who's trying to hold up a standard of righteousness and trying to do what's right and trying to influence others, and their existence is so pitiful. But they're holding fast, and they're serving God, and they're doing the right thing. Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. When you fast, don't fast like the hypocrites do. Don't make long your face. Don't make it clear that you're really suffering in your service to, to God. Instead, do the opposite. He says, wash your face, anoint your head, clean up your appearance so that you don't appear to men to be in misery. That you don't appear to men to be suffering. They have their reward. What's your reward going to be? So if you make yourself out to be the suffering Christian, the suffering saint, make it clear to everyone that you're serving God in an unfriendly world. And it's hard, but you're being faithful. Some people are going to look at you and they're going to say, Oh, poor brother Joseph. Oh, poor brother Paul. Look at what he's going through. Look at what he's doing. What a faithful servant of the king. And what suffering. And if our minds aren't where they should be, if our hearts aren't right before God, we're going to say, okay, that, that's an evidence of, of Christ in me. Look, people are noticing. I must be doing something right. No, Jesus says, put a smile on your face. Clean yourself up. Look presentable. And look like you're living a life in the light of Jesus Christ. No matter what you're suffering, take it in stride. You know, really, we have the example of Jesus to look at and the, of the apostles. What did Jesus do? He preached to thousands and they turned and they walked away from him. But Jesus wasn't overcome with disappointment, with bitterness, with rejection. And Jesus didn't make himself out to be some great sufferer, though he was. Jesus set his face like a flint and marched boldly toward Jerusalem, knowing that death awaited him. And his disciples, they were moaning and they were complaining and they were worrying. And Jesus told them, for this purpose came I into the world. For this hour came I into the world. He says, don't be like they are. When thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. The idea here is secret service. And that's something that we as believers often really struggle with. Because even when we can get to the point that we understand that the rewards in serving Christ are not the rewards the world seeks after. And the benefits of serving him are not wealth and privilege. They're not popularity and all of those other things. 
we still find ourselves seeking some tangible reward. Seeking some tangible thing that we can lay hold of or something to make it worth what we're entering into and serving him. And when we do that, we're missing the point. It's about serving him not just when we're seen by others, whether friend or foe, but serving him when nobody sees, when nobody knows, being the same person at home alone that we are in the church house or on the city street. And he says, God is going to see you in secret. And he will reward you openly. It's self-evident the reward that we're going to receive is not going to be something visible, at least in the way these Pharisees were looking for it. It's not going to be the praise of men, the esteem of men. It's not going to be wealth and privilege and power. But the reward that comes in serving Jesus Christ is manifest in his word as it's experienced in the lives of believers. And the reward is what? It's a comfort, an assurance, a knowledge that he is with us, that he's leading, that he's directing the Apostle Paul manifests it throughout his ministry and life as trial after trial comes into his life, as afflictions abound. He says, I've learned in whatsoever state I'm in therewith to be content. Contentment is described as a rare jewel by William Gurnall who wrote a book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Contentment, peace, peace in every situation, in every trial. It's the gift that keeps on giving in the life of every believer who serves the Lord Jesus Christ in secret without a desire for selfish gain. But you see, we all struggle with that because that temptation is real. We always try to... to to make, make something visible, something to monetize the, the cost-benefit analysis of serving Christ. But Jesus says, turn away from all of that. He says, serve me because of who I am. And do right because it's right, because it's good. And recognize that it's not men's judgment that we are valuing. Rather, it's the judgment of God because he is the one who is the ultimate judge. He concludes this section of the sermon by telling us not to focus on physical gain. Don't lay up treasures on earth because they're going to corrupt and they're going to fade away. You know, gold and silver will melt away. It's a reality. Rust eats away metal things and moths eat away clothing. Don't take care for all of these things. Your heavenly father knows that you have need of them and he'll take care of and provide the things that you need. So what then do you focus on? You focus on that which is of lasting good. You focus on the commands of God and implementing them in your life. The final realization is that the reward of God in the lives of the faithful is everlasting life. And that's something that seems so far away, so distant from us, it's hard to even comprehend often, hard to even think about. But Jesus gives us images of that blessed reward, even as he speaks his gospel in his earthly ministry. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the last day. Matthew twenty five thirty one. when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Before him shall be gathered all nations and he'll separate them one from another. As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, he'll set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Talk about a reward, a kingdom. Inherit the kingdom 
But notice what he says. It was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. You say, how's that a reward? Well, he goes on to say, for, for I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me sick and you visited me in prison and you came to me. The father is going to sit upon his throne. He's going to separate his sheep and he's going to look at them and say, come inherit a kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. Because you did good. You served me. You cared for me. What was the service? It was obviously in secret. How do I know that? Because their answer is, Lord, when did we do these things? When did we come to you in prison? When did we come to you when you were sick? When did we feed you when you were hungry? When when did we clothe you when you were naked? They weren't doing these things to be seen of men. In fact, they didn't even know that they had done them. Why? Because they were done in secret service to the king. They were doing what Jesus said do. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They were exceeding that righteousness because they weren't doing it to be seen of men. And they weren't loving their own. They were loving their enemies. And they weren't feeding their own. They were feeding even their enemies. And they weren't keeping the letter of the law according to a human understanding. They were keeping the heart, the spirit of the law. They were serving Jesus Christ. Well, how were they doing that? Because Jesus Christ was in them, ruling them, guiding them. Because before the foundation of the world, he prepared for them a home. And he secured them by his own blood. And he quickened them by his spirit and gave them life and gave them ability. And he gave them the gospel message to direct their actions. To teach them a greater righteousness than that which was of the law. But you know what? That same day, that last day, the king's going to separate on the left these these figures that are described as goats. And the opposite message is going to be given to them. Depart from me, cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Because, because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was sick and you didn't visit me. I was in prison and you didn't come to me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And these are the ones who thought they had done good. They'd done righteous. And they say, when didn't we do these things? Don't you realize we were on the street corners praying? Don't you realize that we were fasting often? Don't you realize that we were giving alms and caring for the poor? The Lord's going to say, inasmuch as you did it not to the least of these, my children, you did it not to me. You see, they were giving alms, but they were doing it in a public way. And they were doing it to those that it seemed most beneficial to them to care for. But Jesus says you do it secretly. And your father who sees in secret, he'll reward you openly. Well, here's a very open reward. This is the last day. The whole world is gathered together. And openly the father declares what? Come ye blessed. Inherit the kingdom. There's no more open reward than that. A declaration. These are mine. You are mine. Come. Come and inherit the kingdom. The Apostle Paul, reaching the last days of his life, that familiar text. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. This is the old Pharisee. The Pharisee of the Pharisees. Who says all that I did under the law. All that righteousness that I obtained under the law. It's nothing. It's filthy rags. Everything that was gained to me. I've counted loss. That I may win Christ. And be found in him. Everything that was esteemed as righteousness to me. Is now counted as dung. As 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 refuse. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul comes to the end. He says, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I finished my course. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness which the Lord is going to give me. And not to me only, but to all them who love his appearing. There's a reward in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But that whole convoluted matrix trying to understand how we can obtain a reward that we didn't work for, and yet we can work to obtain a reward. How does that work? It works because it is Christ in you. It is God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God who has quickened you by his grace. It is God who has written his law in your heart and put it in your mind. It is God who by his grace has directed his word into your life to interact with you, to apply his word to your heart and make you more than what you were. And yet the warning of scripture abounds. Jesus says, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The Apostle Paul writes and says, beware, lest any one of you, having received a promise, should fail to enter in to the rest. And why would that happen? Because of unbelief. The Apostle Paul writes, as we looked at a few months ago, and says, I keep my body under subjection. Lest after I've preached to others, I myself should become cast away. The danger is real that men might beguile us of our reward. Not that eternal reward. Not that day when he says, come you blessed of my father. But certainly that assurance expressed by the Apostle Paul. That hope of glory. That identity in Jesus Christ that we live with day by day. If any of us should seem, as he says in the Hebrew letter, to come short, should fall away from that hope, that faith, that trust in him, that desire for selfless service, to serve him in secret as well as before men. If that should happen to us, we need to turn. We need to repent right away and seek him and seek that righteousness that comes only through faithful, obedient service. In Hebrews chapter 10, the apostle addresses those who have received the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke and to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He talks about the importance of fellowship in the church, of us in keeping one another accountable, keeping one another focused and fixed upon Christ. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Sobering words, sobering thoughts. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How do we avoid this? Call to remembrance the former days. Remember, after you were illuminated, how you endured a great fight of afflictions. You were made a gazing stock by reproaches and afflictions. You were companions of others who were so used. 
He said, you were my companions. You had compassion of me and my bonds. You took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. You weren't doing these things working for a reward. You were doing these things knowing it was yours in Christ Jesus. In another place, he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. You might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. What does that mean? There are a lot of ideas about that. The just shall live by faith. Some say, well, that means that the righteous, the children of God, are going to get to go to heaven because of their faith. No, it's a little more relevant than that. What do I mean? It's not about what you do to get to go to heaven. It's about how you live in this world. How are the righteous going to live? They're going to be sustained by their faith. It's their faith that's going to strengthen them day by day. It's your trust in Jesus Christ, your dependence on him that is going to give you a meaningful life. And it's going to give you the strength to overcome temptation and not to turn aside. And your righteousness is going to grow more and more. Why? Because the faith of Jesus Christ is going to sustain you. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. He says, you're going to be delivered by your belief, by your faith, by your trust. You're going to reflect upon the past experience. and You're going to draw near to Jesus Christ. You're going to lay hold on him. Ultimately, this idea, him that seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Pray to the Father in secret. Give alms in secret. Worship in secret. It's about whether we believe that God is really real. You see, there's a lot of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but it's all a public thing. They pray in public. You know, maybe you and your family or friends, when you sit down to eat a meal at a restaurant or in public, you pray before the meal. But when you grab your sandwich in your truck, do you pray before you eat it? It's a serious question. You pray before bed with your children, with your wife. But when you're all alone, do you pray before you lay your head down at night? Do you pray when you rise in the morning? You say, well, no, I... Don't, because God knows. Yes, God does know, but he's commanded us to pray. Do you believe he's real? Talk to him. If you're only communing with God before men, it's an evidence you don't really believe that God is present, that he's real, that he's there. The same thing with giving of alms. If you believe that giving alms is a command of God and it's a way to communicate God's blessings to you, to others who are in need, then you'll do it all the time and you'll do it secretly because you know that God knows and God may work. But if you only do it before men, then you're serving men. You're doing it for men. You don't believe God is active and real. And that's the idea that he's dealing with here in this Hebrew letter in chapter 10. Remember that it's God you're serving and God is real. To do otherwise is what? It's to deny his reality, his existence, and his salvation. And that's why he invokes those strong words. It's to tread under your feet the cross of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice. It's to put him to an open shame. It's to say it's all a farce, it's not real. But Jesus Christ came to a hopeless people. And he told them there's hope. And hope is found not in outward show. But hope is found in the heart that's changed by my work. And he encourages us this way. 
Don't look on the outward appearance. And don't make your service something that men will boast in or be proud of. But serve God quietly, peacefully. And really, that is the command for us as Christians. What? That we might live a quiet and peaceable life. It's not for a big show. But it's authentic. It's real. And ultimately, what it is is evidence of the working of Christ in you. And the reward for that. It's an open, obvious reward. It starts with the assurance of his presence that wells up in you. And it culminates with that crown of righteousness, that reward, that declaration by the king on his throne. Come, inherit a kingdom. The apostle Paul, when he was all alone, when all men had forsook him, no man stood with him. He received the blessed presence of the Savior. He said, the Lord stood with me. And because of that, he said, I know he will. And you and I have that assurance. We have that assurance because it's Christ in us and working through us. And his gospel impacts us and it changes us. It draws us to a life of authenticity, of real service. Not imposed by some external force and not... Purely sustained by the accountability of family and of church and other believers. But it's something that will hold us even when we're left alone. Because it's the real us. The us that's been sanctified by the word of God. Sanctified by his spirit. And made something more than we ever were. And our righteousness will then exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because our righteousness will be found in Christ himself, the righteous one, our advocate, our mediator, our Lord. Thank you for your time and your attention this morning. I pray the Lord will bless his word to us.